0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And
1: I'm Chuck Chakraborty.
0: And today we're going to start the podcast with a myth, or more specifically, the epic poem poem version of this myth, the Aeneid by Virgil. And you're probably familiar with the main arc of the Aeneid. The young hero Aeneas escapes from Troy and eventually goes on to start Rome. But it's the middle part of the story that concerns us today, his little romantic stopover in Carthage. So according to the Aeneid, Aeneas stopped in the North African city of Carthage where he was welcomed by the city's queen, Dido. And it wasn't long before she fell in love with him and then when Jupiter finally ordered Aeneas to keep on keeping on with his travels and move along, Dido basically flipped out, to put it in a non-epic poetry kind of way. She ended up committing suicide and swore everlasting hatred between East and West. And and here's what she had to say, in a in an epic poetry kind of way.
1: No love between our peoples ever shore clash with shore. Sea against sea and sword against sword, this is my curse. War between all our peoples, all their peoples, endless war
0: pretty serious stuff there. So as Aeneas finds out on a subsequent jaunt to the underworld, war does come for Rome and Carthage, and Virgil, writing well after the fact, would have known that. In fact, the spurned love of Dido was Virgil's simple, poetic solution to the question of why these bloody, endless wars between Rome and Carthage started in the first place. But There are more complex reasons behind it, and that's sort of what what we're going to be looking into today, how it really came to be that Rome and Carthage fought three wars, that Carthage ended up being completely
1: destroyed, and that Rome came pretty close to the brink in the process, too. But before we get into that at all, first, we want to take a look at Carthage a little bit. Obviously, Rome was the victor in the clash between the two. So consequently, we know that city. We know the empire. Carthage, on the other hand, we know less about. It's thought of as an extinct city. I think there's a little tag next to all the entries in the Galileo database that indicates that. Made me feel kind of sorry for it. It was basically wiped off the face of the earth. So where was Carthage? Who were its people? Well, they were Phoenicians, a seafaring people. More specifically, Carthage was founded as a colony by Phoenician people from the city of Tyre, now in Lebanon, in 812 BC. Yeah. And the
0: name means new city, the name Carthage. But considering it was founded three centuries before the Roman Republic, that's all sort of relative. Depends on how you look at things. But the Phoenicians chose the spot, which is now near the city of Tunis in North Africa, because it was just perfectly positioned. It had a secure harbor. It sat on the east-west trade route that brought Spanish silver to Tyre and the north-south line that connected Greece to Italy and Sicily and down. On to North Africa, so it wasn't too long before the colony became not just a, a merchant capital, but a local leader too. Started producing items itself, and initially this was luxury goods like terracotta figurines and carved ivory masks, jewelry. My favorite item here: decorated ostrich eggs. It's funny to imagine there was ever a time when you'd have an industry for that, but. Carthage was on it, and they were really known for their beds and cushions and mattresses. Um, those items from Carthage were considered to be especially ritzy, the best of the best.
1: And when the city of Old Tyre declined, Carthage really became the new Phoenician hub, especially with its powerful fleet and merchant network. They even developed their own dialect called Punic, which also became a byword for their culture.
0: Yeah, so we're going to toss around the word Punic in this episode, obviously, because the wars we're talking about are the Punic Wars. Still, though, the city of Carthage, even though it was quite successful and was expanding, didn't get big aspirations for imperialism until just before the first Punic War. And by that point, there was a bit of a problem with their neighbor to the north, which was Rome, by this point getting more and more powerful. Both Rome and Carthage wanted to expand to Sicily because Sicily was fertile, it had rich soil, it It was just a a good place to be in possession of and the key, it was also the key to southern expansion for Rome and northern expansion for Carthage. So it's not only a jewel in its own right, it's, it's a bridge to bigger things.
1: But before we get to war, it's important to know something about mercantile Carthage. So we're going to explain that a little bit. They were rich and considered to have the best navy in the land, but their population was very small. So consequently, they relied on mercenaries or silver spears led by Punic officers. And French historian Jules Michelet puts it this way. The life of an industrious merchant or a Carthaginian was too precious to be risked, as long as it was possible to substitute for it that of a barbarian from Spain or Gaul. Carthage knew and could tell to a drachma what the life of a man of each nation came to.
0: So they have a bot army, but they also weren't exactly popular with their subject lands. And while Rome sort of came in and would make conquered territories at least willing to submit to being Roman because money would eventually follow, Carthage just milked its African provinces for all they were worth, really draining them dry. So consequently... Carthage's subject lands were definitely willing to look at any other offers that came their way. So there's already a lot more at stake before we get to this first war than just Sicily and all of Sicily's bounty. Because of Rome's allies, Carthage's mercenaries were outnumbered 10 to 1. And because its subject lands would surely rebel if the Romans ever landed in North Africa, the fight couldn't come too close to home. Carthage didn't want it getting anywhere near their actual home base. Because
1: the subject lands would turn on them. Definitely. So this building tension between the two would-be Sicilian conquerors finally erupted in 264 BC, and fighting went on for about a generation, with Rome winning for most of that time, if you could call it that, really. I mean, Sicily was pretty much destroyed in the process. But near the end, a Punic leader emerged, Hamilcar, the Thunderbolt, He's really good and brings things to a draw on land, leaving the ultimate result to be decided at sea.
0: Yeah, so we know already that the Phoenicians are famous for their navy. So Carthage has obviously had the superior navy over the years, but Rome has been shoring up what it has over this decades-long war by this point, building up their navy, and they ended up trumping Carthage with a pretty nifty new invention. It sounds really simple, but it did the trick. Basically, it was a plank-spike combo that you could Hook the other ship onto your own, latch two ships together, so your ship and the enemy ship, and then have your men rush on board to the enemy ship and fight hand to hand. So basically turning a naval battle between two ships into a battle between Marines.
1: And the war finally ended with a naval battle in 241 BC, in which Rome got Sicily. They won. After that, they had peace for 25 years, but it was a really uncomfortable peace. Both knew that war would come again at some point.
0: Yeah, but Carthage wasn't just sitting around brooding, thinking about future wars, really. They were busy making money in Spain, specifically from silver. We mentioned that earlier. And they were also raising a new generation of leaders for this eventual uh, unavoidable war, specifically the sons of the Thunderbolt, Hamilcar's three sons, Hannibal, Hasdrubal, and Mago or Mago. i couldn't. He's the least famous of of these sons. So, pronunciation. No pronunciation keys available. If anyone
1: knows, write to us. So now that this new generation is in the picture, war does come again. Though this time the fight starts over a Spanish city instead of Sicily, and it starts when Hannibal seizes the Spanish city in 218 BC. Soon, though, he heads towards Italy because he knows that if the Carthage-Rome battle ever reaches North Africa, it's bad news for Carthage. So basically what they knew before, what they were trying to prevent before, he's trying to prevent again. All those again.
0: disaffected subject lands
1: would rise up, presumably. Exactly. Plus, if he can get to Italy first, he's thinking maybe it will have the same effect, and some of those Roman allies will join up with him instead.
0: Or at least not fight with Rome, so he'll have fewer people to deal with. So he crosses the Alps with his army and his troop of elephants. That's probably what he's most famous for, and we're going to talk about elephants little bit more later. But he basically starts crushing it after that one victory after the next. And his most famous triumph came in 216 BC at the Battle of Cannae. It left 50,000 Romans dead, a huge loss for, for Rome. And the Roman allies were starting to defect at this point, too, just as Hannibal had hoped. And we kind of come to a stalemate here, though, or at least um, a pause in the action, because Hannibal couldn't take Rome itself alone. So in 207 BC, he calls on his brother Hasdrubal, who's been busy defending Spain all this time with only a handful of sort of the last pick men, 15,000 of them or so. So we're going to have two of these Thunderbolt brothers now coming into Italy, and Rome down and out after all of these battles. So it seemed like a pretty serious situation for Rome. And according to a Lee Levin article in military history, he said, these were without question, the darkest days in the history of the Roman Republic, really, they didn't know if they were gonna pull through with this one.
1: So to try to start to turn this around before they can even do that, to go head to head with those two brothers, Rome votes in two new consuls who happen to hate each other, which isn't such a good thing. You wouldn't think that would be a very good move to make. They were Gaius Claudius Nero, ancestor of the emperor and Marcus Livius Salinator. Now, Salinator will block Hasdrubal's crossing over the Alps from Spain to Italy. That was his job. And Nero's job was to block Hannibal to the south. So the tide turns in Roman favor when Hasdrubal crosses the Alps too quickly and finds himself ahead of his brother. So he tries to send off a message that actually ends up in Nero's hands instead.
0: Yeah, but Nero thinks that it might be a trick, you know, these tricky people from Carthage. And he thinks about it long and hard, looks at the messengers, they do look tired, they look kind of dirty. He decides that maybe it's legit, or at least he's just got to hope it is. And he goes with it. He decides to act while Hannibal is is clueless about his brother's whereabouts. So Nero decides to take a small group of his guys, sort of the elite legions uh, from his 45,000 general group and join up with Salinator to face Hasdrubal with combined consular forces before Hannibal realizes what's going on. And he doesn't want to attract notice. He doesn't want Hasdrubal to realize that suddenly there are two consular forces to go up against. So Nero and his men slip into Salinator's camp at night, even just slipping into their tents. They're not even pitching their own tents but Hasdrubal is sharp, and he realizes that something is going on, that there are suddenly extra Romans in that camp. And he notices unshaven men, guys with dirty armor, uh, people who look like they've been traveling. And he gives them the slip and heads to cross the Matoris River because he doesn't know what's going on. If his brother Hannibal has been defeated and the consular armies have joined forces or if some other confusion has happened so he's planning if he can just get across that river he'll be safe on the other side and he can send out new messengers and try to figure out what on earth is going on
1: Unfortunately for him, though, the river is flooded. And so when Nero and Salonator show up to fight, he's in a really tight spot, especially since his mercenaries from Gaul are drunk. Yeah,
0: that's one of the problems with mercenaries, especially uh, these guys had not been working with him for very long, so they hadn't gotten used to... I guess his regimen, but...
1: Don't get drunk.
0: Don't get drunk. I would drunk. think that would be an obvious rule Basic of war. introductory <laughs> instruction, but Hasdrubal makes do. He lines up those unruly Gauls on his left on high ground that's too steep to attack. So their purpose was basically to distract the Romans because... They could potentially charge downhill, but also to be too far off to be obviously drunk. So conceal their condition a little bit. In the center, meanwhile, he lines up his dependable Ligurians, who um, are, you know, guys guys he can count on, and lines them up with his 10 surviving elephants, which... Ten elephants, not a whole lot to work with, but elephants were obviously pretty scary to go up against. And I think we've talked about them before in the... Um, King Porus episode. And um, the crucial thing about them here is that horses who hadn't seen elephants before were just absolutely terrified of them. They wouldn't go near them. So it could really decimate a cavalry pretty easily and then just frighten soldiers clearly. And um, finally, so we've covered the the left and the center. On the right, Hasribal stations himself along with his Spanish and his African veterans. And these are the best of the best, um, his, his guys he can count on, his number one soldiers. And the plan is to use this wing of the army to push forward and cut around the Romans.
1: Sounds like a pretty complex plan, and it does work initially. The right pushes ahead, the center holds, and the Gauls are scary enough up on that hill to keep the Romans that are right under the command of Nero stalling, and they miss the action. Finally, though, Nero does catch on. He realizes that the battle is to his left, and so he decides to abandon his position, take half a legion with him, and fight on Salinator's side. Carthage gets confused at this point. They're, like, breaking apart— Uh, They're going in different directions. The battle is lost.
0: Yeah, so knowing the jig is up, Hasdrubal charges into the line. He wants to die a warrior's death. He's killed and he's beheaded, even though he and his brother had been pretty careful about properly burying Roman generals, Roman consuls. He's beheaded, and the first thing Hannibal sees of his brother in ten years is when Hasdrubal's head is thrown into his camp. So after that defeat, after the defeat of Hasdrubal, Hannibal's mystique was sort of compromised, and he fought on for a few more years in southern Italy, but there wasn't that supreme threat to Rome anymore. And by 201 BC, the second Punic War was over, and Carthage was yet again a loser. So Carthage seemed pretty much out for the count at this point, especially looking at it retrospectively. We know where Rome is going, what lies in Rome's future here. But even though Carthage's military and political clout were gone, the city started to gradually, over
1: the decades, make a comeback in trade and, and show some promise again. The problem here is that Rome still holds a grudge, though, and some Romans in particular wanted to see Carthage destroyed. Senator Cato, the elder, takes to ending speeches with a quick, quote, Carthage must be destroyed. So Rome actually starts to intentionally provoke Carthage. And finally, they make this kind of ridiculous demand that Carthage actually relocate inland and after that war is declared in 149 B.C. Because obviously a seafaring merchant town
0: their, their whole livelihood depends on their location. Yeah, it doesn't even make sense. So, like you mentioned, war starts in 149 BC, and after that, the siege of Carthage goes on for some years, but by the spring of 146 BC, the Roman army, which at this point is under the commander Scipio Aemilianus, gets through the city's defenses and launches the last assault on Birsa, which is the uh, citadel of Carthage, and also its religious center, its center of government, really the heart of the city. And it's bloody work from there. And um, the accounts we have, which are Greek and Latin accounts, so you know, we don't get to hear Carthage's side of the story are are pretty horrendous. There were apparently so many dead in Carthage that Scipio made some of his soldiers responsible just for clearing the streets of bodies so that more troops could move through and they wouldn't be slowed down. But it took
1: six days and six nights, even even with all of that bloodshed. And on the seventh day, city elders brought all of branches down from the temple, from the highest point of the Beersa Citadel. Scipio spared them and the 50,000 who surrendered along with them, but some in Carthage did stay and fight to the death. But the city wasn't just defeated, it was destroyed after that. Scipio had his men tear down the city walls and ramparts. They burned houses and buildings. They looted and pillaged. They sold off citizens into slavery. But there's one thing they didn't do. They didn't actually plow the earth with salt. That is a myth, right, Sarah?
0: It is, because Rome had just conquered this territory, which did have a lot of agricultural action going on. Why would you want to intentionally destroy all of that? One thing that the Romans couldn't just destroy out of hand, but eventually also fell fell in the fall of Carthage was the language, the Punic language. It was wiped out over time. And it was kind of this utter destruction was kind of a message from Rome that we don't mess around. According to an article in History Today by Michael Brett, here's what he had to say. The destruction of Carthage now stood as a bloody memorial to the cost of resistance to Rome in a suitably apocalyptic fanfare for Rome's coming of age as a new world power. So... Intense. It does sound kind of apocalyptic if you, if you think about clearing the bodies from the streets and, and the fire that burned the city and just the general destruction.
1: And that it's just gone. These people's lives, their livelihood. Everything. Yeah. Well, although Carthage did bounce back eventually as a
0: distinctly Roman capital of North Africa, it was a favorite city of the emperors. But after its capture by the Arabs in 698 AD, it was abandoned and eventually eclipsed by Tunis, which is right next door. I don't know if we've already mentioned this, but Carthage is a kind of upscale residential suburb now of Tunis.
1: So the landscape has changed a little bit, and the meaning of the word Punic has also come to mean something different. Now it means, quote, faithless or treacherous. According to Merriam-Webster. According to Merriam-Webster. And just as an example of Carthage's bad reputation, it's perhaps most famously associated with the rumor that they'd sacrifice their children instead of the standard goat or lamb sacrifice. And there's actually been some recent anthropological research into that claim, According to the journal Archaeology, a team from the University of Pittsburgh led by Jeffrey Schwartz studied the cremated remains of 540 children from 348 burial urns, which were excavated in a cemetery outside Carthage's main burial ground. And they determined that half were prenatal or couldn't have survived long enough after birth and therefore couldn't have been sacrificed. So it looks like this is just a myth.
0: And the vast majority of the others were really quite young, most of them under the age of one, but almost all of Them under the age of five or six, which was the age you could expect to graduate to the main cemetery, and those weren't unusual mortality rates for the population at the time. And another theory that sort of came out of that study was that some civilizations didn't really regard uh, babies or really young children as individuals like they would for adults or older children, and therefore, if you if you didn't regard something as an individual, it might not be worthy of a sacrifice. So, sort of spinning that rumor about Carthage on its head. It's also interesting because there are these three great destructive wars, how often the story of Carthage came up right after World War II when the world had obviously just gone through a terribly destructive ordeal. And there's one specific quote from Bertolt Brecht that you might see. Uh, He used it to kind of frighten fellow Germans out of remilitarization. And uh, here's what he had to say. Great Carthage drove three wars. After the first one, it was still powerful. After the second, it was still inhabitable. After the third one, it was no longer possible to find her. So a a serious end for kind of a serious podcast. Whenever we do these battle episodes, they tend to be downers. Yeah, they are kind of downers. I don't know. I guess um, every now and then you have an uplifting connection for like marathon, for instance, or something. But yeah, battle. It's not pretty.
1: No, they're never pretty or fun, but they always give us good insight into different cultures and, and why they do what they do, I think. But if anyone has anything else to add to this story or suggestions for other battles that you would like covered or wars, in fact, lost cities, any of those types of stories, please write us. We're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com or you can look us up on Twitter at Mistin History or on Facebook. And if you want
0: to learn a little bit more about Nero, as in the ancestor of the Nero we talked about today, we have an article called Did Emperor Nero play the fiddle while Rome burned? So you can find out the answer to that question by searching for Nero on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most
1: promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.